Hello and welcome to The Global Insight from Control Risks, the specialist risk consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. This is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Joining us today is Anna Walker. Anna is a principal in the firm and is the lead for all of our political analysis in Europe. Anna, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. What I thought we would do first is really set the scene because, Anna, I don't think that you imagined a year ago that you'd be here. And I don't think that we imagined a year ago, Claudine and I, um, that we would have a podcast like this. But a special military operation designed to decapitate the Ukrainian administration in just a matter of days, as was anticipated, has now ground on for a year. And in the wake of that ongoing conflict, um, not only has much of eastern Ukraine been laid to waste, um, but so has geopolitics, so have energy markets, so have food markets, um, so have questions about military balances of power um, and the global geopolitical order. Uh, So um, with that sort of weighty intro, why don't we get stuck in a bit and talk a little bit about um, the scene on the ground today, Anna, and how you see that, at least for the short to medium term right now? Yes, you're absolutely right. If you'd said to me a year ago that we would be discussing a conflict in Europe in the 21st century, I would have been not expected that at all, been very, very surprised um, to be looking at this really for the past year, watching the, 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 the way in which the conflict has played out. Um, as you say, we're now nearly 12 months into this and we had a successful counteroffensive by Ukraine towards the second half of last year, pushing the Russian forces really far back closer to the borders of the territory that they controlled prior to the invasion on the 24th of February last year. And there's really been a very sustained, almost a war of attrition that's been going on, particularly in the eastern Donetsk and Luhansk regions, really for the past four months or so. Anna, take us, if you can, maybe another four months into the future. Um, What does the conflict look like? So we've been waiting and watching throughout these winter months now for a renewed sustained counteroffensive by Ukraine to push Russia further back um, into Kherson, Zaporizhia regions and potentially Donetsk and Luhansk. We now expect an escalation in fighting on both sides to come in the coming weeks. Um, really with Ukraine, Ukraine will have the intent to push Russian forces right back into Donetsk and Luhansk, out of Kherson and Zaporizhia. Russia on the other side intending to really consolidate its position in Donetsk and Luhansk and retain control of that territory that it has held, held on to really since 2014, in fact, um, large parts of the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. So further heavy fighting on both sides, further heavy casualties. We expect further strikes by um, Russian missiles and drones across Ukraine, across energy infrastructure, potentially transport infrastructure, Um, also causing significant civilian casualties. As we've seen with already 
15 missile strikes um, launched onto Ukrainian territory since mid last year. One of the things that it strikes me is particularly interesting about this juncture in the conflict is that we're in the considerable doubt, I think, at this point about what the end goal is now for the main parties to the conflict. That's right. Yes. So, so Ukraine has really put its marker in the ground and intends to recapture all of its territory. And by that, we believe it means trying to take Crimea as well. And if you remember, Crimea has been held um, by Russia, was annexed by Russia in 2014, but also Donetsk and Luhansk, large parts of which, as I said, were also um, controlled by Russian-backed forces since 2014. So that's Ukraine's goal, to, to, to really um, push Russian forces out of Ukraine as a whole. Russia's goal, not quite so clear. We've obviously heard a lot at the beginning of the conflict about the so-called denazification of Ukraine, the demilitarization of Ukraine. We think what this essentially means now is for Russia to retain control of the full territory of Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. And we think that that could be claimed by Russia to be a victory in this conflict. To what extent do the Western backers of Ukraine align and support those objectives that Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky is pursuing, as you just articulated the manner? So this is a very interesting question. I think we definitely see reluctance on the part of the West to actively support the retaking of Crimea, for example. Very little is publicly discussed about this. That said, we're obviously seeing the es- the the we've obviously seen the intensification of military support that the West has been giving to Ukraine. First of all, there was considerable reluctance even about giving the long-range missiles, for example, or the air defense systems. That happened. There was then a considerable reluctance about giving tanks. Just recently, we've, we've, we've seen how many countries are now pledging to deliver tanks to Ukraine. The discussion has now talked about um, the delivery of fighter jets. Now, clearly, this is something that was always previously seen as potentially a red line by the West, but it's very noticeable how much that discussion has picked up just in the last few weeks. Um, and most recently, with President Zelensky's visit to Europe, again, that was a real focus of a lot of the conversations. So we've seen red lines being sort of shifted over the past year, and I think we can't rule that out you know, in, in, the next, in the next six months or so. If Ukraine continues to make territorial gains, recapture territory, would that red line in terms of Crimea, would that be breached as well? Would that be crossed as well? And I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Given that dynamism, given that flux, would you be comfortable telling us, after all, you are our most senior Europe analyst, um, will you tell us a little bit about what you see if you look 12 to 24 months into the future? Goodness, you have put me on the spot there. I have a feeling it's not the first time you've been asked this question, though. <laughs> no, and, and, and that's right. And, and actually, there's an interesting point that sort of over the course of the conflict over the last 12 months, we've progressively um, elongated our time frames for looking ahead. So if you think back to February 2022, we were really looking at, you know, two to three days ahead, what, what was going to be the situation then. Our current scenarios look six months ahead. We are we are sort of redrafting those to look 12 to 24 months ahead. And I think interestingly, if you take 12 months from now, you have um, elections coming up in both Russia and in Ukraine. You have US elections coming up towards the back end of 2024. And we think that those will really play quite a considerable role in not necessarily determining the course of the conflict, but determining the course of 
any peace processes, any peace negotiations, any ceasefire discussions, because this conflict is going to play into those electoral processes across all three countries in a, in a really significant way. All right, it's fascinating. So those are some landmarks to look out for with both predictable and unpredictable outcomes as a result of the as a result of the results of those contests. And I realized I didn't, I didn't actually answer your question there, Chuck, which is where we see things sort of 12, 12 months ahead, 24 months ahead. Probably Ukraine having pushed Russia back to the Donetsk and Luhansk regions, but with still obviously hotly contested front lines, um, persistent you know, fighting, shelling, as we have seen to date, we don't think that is going to cease. Possibly still the threat of missile strikes, drone strikes across Ukraine. I think, you know, whatever situation we're in, we're not going to be in a in a situation of peace. There is not going to be a peace agreement, maybe not even a ceasefire agreement within that time frame. So if you don't mind me saying this, I mean, then the shorthand for this for this image of the future is is hot war. I think that's a that's a fair a fair way, fair way of putting it. Yes. Chuck. And in, in that time frame. What, what what do you sense will be the position of countries that are supporting Ukraine or or consider themselves to be neutral? What 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 do you both think about how they will be viewing the hot war as we imagine it twenty four months out? Because I find it hard to imagine, particularly within the EU, Europe, and the US, there will be quite the same degree of unity and popular support for supporting what's happening in Ukraine. Although at the moment, opinion polls do seem to suggest that actually there is a very resilient um, amount of backing for uh, supporting Ukraine. I think it is remarkable the unity that we have seen across Europe. Um, and probably 12 months ago, again, we would not have seen, we would not have um, been able to predict that so straightforwardly. Mm-hmm. Clearly issues like, or factors like the sanctions that the EU has put on on Russia, for example, have to be rolled over through consensus. There's been very little pushback from within EU member states against those sanctions, with a, a couple of exceptions, but even those have been smoothed over. And you're right, I think there is probably concern in, in Ukraine at the potential for sort of war fatigue to creep in um, in Europe. It is it is very expensive for 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 Europe to support Ukraine. You know, the 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 cost of the military support um, Europe will have to play a huge role and will want to play a huge huge role in helping to rebuild Ukraine eventually, and, and that's looking into the longer term. But there is a really sort of substantial financial um, element that goes into this. And of course, European countries are themselves facing cost of living crises, energy crises, all of these put pressure on governments. But I think so far, and you know, they, they, governments have retained the support of, of most of the, the, the populations across the region. It will be more difficult to sustain that as we get into the the, the coming year. But I, I think the more people see Ukraine sort of withstanding um, the, the the conflict and being able to push Russia back, that helps to prolong that sort of feeling that European populations will want to continue to support the way in which governments are proceeding. Anna, since the outbreak of hostility a year ago, um, we've seen you and all of our colleagues who have been supporting clients on the ground in Ukraine and in Russia and along the periphery of the conflict, um, we've seen you work harder than I've seen anybody in the company work before. 
Um, can you describe the arc of, of that work and how it's changed from the launch of the invasion to today? Yes, it's been, I suppose, a very um, obvious example of of responding to a crisis and then coming out of that crisis. You know, we often work with our clients, helping them to um, improve their business continuity measures, for example, help them to respond to crises. And this has really been a 12-month um, example of how we do that. So clearly in the in the early days of the of the conflict, we were supporting clients to help get their personnel out of Ukraine, help them understand the threats to their personnel, help helping them fulfill their duty of care obligations towards their employees, and not just in Ukraine, but in the countries bordering Ukraine, in Russia as well, for example. As the conflict progressed, companies and our clients started to be more interested in, you know, what does this mean from a global perspective? So we did a lot of work on potential scenarios as to how the conflict might have evolved, but particularly from a security perspective. So would NATO be drawn in? Um, what was the threat of, of, a, of a sort of nuclear incident occurring within Ukraine? And then as, we, as we've moved out of those early months, again, it's more about scenario planning and companies realising that or understanding the importance of factoring in I know we used to say black swan events, but sort of, you know, low likelihood events into their into their decision making, into their business planning, into their crisis management plans. So that's really where we are at the moment. And I know that that both you and and Claudine have also worked with a lot of companies on understanding sort of where geopolitical risk fits into this this picture. And that's become, I think, I think that's risen up the agenda for a lot of our clients. Awareness of political, country, and economic risks underpin your organization's ability to protect value and mitigate shocks. Whether you need consulting on a particular project or longer-term strategic, analytical, and forecasting resources, we can respond to your requirements face-to-face -face or through our online platform-based solutions. For more information, follow the link in the podcast notes. Yeah, I'd agree with you there, Anna. And actually, I feel the focus of a lot of clients that we talk to now has moved further out into the future. There's a lot more acceptance of um, and a lot more comfort with thinking about the low likelihood um, events. But actually, I, 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 it almost concerns me a bit, actually, that we're seeing a little bit of focus moving away from Ukraine, because actually, as we've talked about, this is not going away. It's a festering sore there are so many issues that have that are going to have to be resolved around EU accession, NATO accession, the consequences globally of this dragging on and on. Uh, uh, you know what happens post Putin, um, and so uh, you know I think we one of our roles is going to be keeping Ukraine on people's minds, even as they rightly turn their attention to other potential um, geopolitical shocks and events over the horizon as well. I know you and Chuck and many of our colleagues have been working on some fascinating and very sensitive cases involving organizations who were operating in Russia at the, at the time of the full-scale invasion in February 2022. They were thrust into an exceptional situation and had some very difficult decisions to make about whether to stay, whether to go, what sort of status to have in the event of staying. Talk us through some of that work and, and, and what sort of lessons you think organizations have learned from that period. That's right. Yes, we work very closely with, with all of our colleagues who are focusing on the region. Um, 
much the same as we would do it under quote unquote normal circumstances, but really to understand who their business partners were in Russia, because of course the intensification of the sanctions regime over the past 12 months has really meant that where companies before didn't necessarily um, look that closely into, into who they were partnering with, or maybe they were in sen- sectors that weren't considered sec- uh, sensitive or strategic, for example, this has really become a top priority for a lot of our clients, understanding their business partners, understanding the sector that they're operating in in Russia and how that they might be exposed to sanctions. And of course, there are the there was just the whole sort of gamut of decisions that companies had to make, like you say, about whether to stay in Russia, if they were to stay in Russia, how to position that um, with, the, with their stakeholders, with their shareholders, with their employees. And companies themselves had their own you know, duty of care responsibilities to their employees in Russia as well. So it's really been, we've been there, I think, to, to, to help companies understand where they fit in and help them to understand the various options that they might have in responding to this. It's been a really fascinating process to watch and, and, and just a few things stand out. Um, some of our colleagues helped companies scenario out exactly what unfolded starting last February. Um, and they helped them do that months and months in advance. And they left the day the invasion started. Um, other companies have reacted uh, more slowly. Um, I was impressed by how most companies tried very hard under extraordinary circumstances to do the right thing, to do the right thing by their people um, and, and to try to make a decision as if they were being held to the highest of global standards with respect to their business in Russia. And then the third thing that impressed me out of all of this, and I that sort of little I impressed um, was in addition to the hostility on the ground in Ukraine, companies had to deal with considerable hostility towards them um, and their decision-making process about staying or leaving Russia. And you know, I think that that was um, shareholder, stakeholder, employee, regulatory, home government pressure um, that was, in some circumstances, absolutely crushing on a on a company. This experience of companies having to navigate through very practical, real, legal, moral implications of a geopolitical shock. We do expect that there are going to be more geopolitical shocks, and that these experiences will be um, very useful for companies to learn from as they prepare for what might happen in the future. This is a conflict which feels perhaps even existential, real, urgent, alarming to people sitting in Europe. But of course, it's had implications everywhere on the planet. There can't be many places on earth that are not feeling the ripple effects in some way or other, um, even if it's through the way that access to or the prices of commodities have changed over the past 12 months. So I think I think it's interesting, Claudine, when you, you mentioned commodity prices, I mean, people didn't really realize the full scale of Ukraine's and Russia's role, but Ukraine's role in particular in supplying the global food market. I think that came as a big surprise to, 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 to a lot of people. Um, and of course, there was an immediate impact just on the availability of certain grains and you know food, food commodities. 
aside from the impact on prices, just the scarcity of those things, you know, there was real concern that in countries that were heavily reliant on imports from Ukraine, that that was going to cause, I mean, not just economic hardship, but, you know, um, unrest for the longer term, real socioeconomic difficulties arising in places far, geographically far from the conflict, but actually very close by virtue of those economic links. So I think that's one of the lessons that has come out of this, the, the sort of, and it sounds a bit obvious, but you know, the, the global interlinkages of these commodity markets are really significant. And of course, there's energy as well, which is a, everyone was more aware of, but Russia's role in the global energy market was, of course, is of course significant. There have been measures taken by the West to try to lessen Russia's oil and gas revenues um, without impacting the actual volumes that come onto the global energy market. But that's really triggered a fundamental shift in how Europe in particular thinks about its energy security. We all knew that we were reliant on Russia for a large port portion of our oil and gas. But actually, when it came down to it, the change in our um, ability to source oil and gas from elsewhere, if you think how quickly that has actually occurred, really, in, in, in over the past year, probably unthinkable 18 months ago that we would have effectively had no gas imports from Russia coming into Europe. So some really significant changes in how the global commodity market markets are working. That will not be reversed. Exactly. Yes. And, uh, and you know, yes, energy transition may have been delayed because there were concerns about energy security issues, particularly in Europe again. But I think the, the fundamental sort of, you know, drive towards lessening our reliance on oil and gas and not just from Russia, but but in general, you know, has, has been boosted by this, has been sort of that th there is extra impetus now to develop renew renewables to really hasten that 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 path, that transition path. I'd add that that I think that there's been a change on a philosophical level also in the way companies think about risk, and that is the way companies think about likelihood and probability. Um, and that is that um, most forecasters, including the three of us, um, until it happened, viewed what viewed the invasion as, as as a low likelihood event. And you know we've been saying that a lot now that think certain things are low li likelihood and then they come to pass. And I, I think it's caused companies around the world to pause and reevaluate how they think about risk and how they think about likelihood, how they think about impact, how they think about um, intent and capability and all of the sort of metrics that, that we use to formulate forecasting. And I think that, you know, sort of corporate risk ships are rewriting themselves now. They're, they're regaining their equilibrium. Um, but I think for a while, um, there was some real soul searching going on in the people who are in charge of risk inside of, of organizations. Anna, let's think now even, we're not even going to think about three to six months. We're not going to think about 12 to 24 months. Um, let's think in terms of legacy issues um, that are genuinely um, enduring. Um, what do you think some of the legacy issues will be um, that come out of the conflict um, that we'll be thinking about for, for years to come? I think if, if we stay focused on sort of Ukraine and its position in, in, in the world, I would say, let's keep an eye on on Ukraine's relationship with Europe and the EU. 
the last 12 months have really shown how much Ukraine sees itself as part of Europe. And I think Europe's response to the conflict has to quite a large extent demonstrated how much sort of Europe is prepared to see Ukraine as part of part of the region. Obviously, Ukraine is hoping for a relatively swift um, accession to the EU. And I think we'll see tensions increasing here if we look a bit beyond the sort of conflict as to when Ukraine will be, for example, given allowed to formally start those accession negotiations. I think in also in and in practical terms, you know, Europe will spend Europe will be hugely involved in the reconstruction and the rebuilding of Ukraine, as I as I already mentioned. And that'll mean that that really the two the two are sort of become even close more closely intertwined than they were before. So I think we need to dwell on the geopolitics when we're thinking about the legacy of Ukraine. I think we're going to look back on this period as being pivotal in terms of where they leave India and China. You know, this has been a real test so far of the role that India and China are playing on the global stage. We are, you know, evolving into a new world order, not dominated by the West, US-led in the same way that um, the world has has operated for, for, for much of the last hundred years. We don't yet know what that world looks like, but we've had some pointers emerging and what we've seen is the way that both countries are emerging as really significant players, diplomatic heavyweights, buyers and influencers in the energy market, potentially maybe even brokers of negotiations at some point. Um, you know, both India and China apparently influential, for example, in influencing the Russian president on the use and hopefully non-use of any nuclear weapons. I think we're going to look back on this period as a critical moment where India and China were emerging and starting to play much more assertive and significant roles on the world stage. And I think also we might look back and see this conflict as pivotal in terms of the way it determines the path that the West goes on. I mean, However, this conflict plays out, at some point we will reflect back on the role that the Western response to the Russian invasion has gone. You know, how effective ultimately have sanctions been? Who were the ultimate beneficiaries? And to what extent will the conflict place a huge amount of strain ultimately on the EU? Questions of unity, financial stability, and so on might em might emerge over time, which are sources of vulnerability. So that this is looking way out, but they would be my thoughts on legacy from a geopolitical perspective. You've you've both set me up beautifully because Anna, having touched on on Ukraine and and, and Claudine taking a wide angle global lens. I thought I would say one or two things about where I think Russia's going to go in terms of legacy issues, and, and I think there are two things to do here, and that is. Russia as a political, economic, and military entity, and Russia as a market. Because prior to this, we'd almost stopped thinking about countries as countries. We think about them as markets. And that was thanks to globalization. But I think the, the legacy issue for Russia is going to be, I think it's going to be another one of these confrontational questions for companies. Um, some of our clients are already asking when and how might they get back into Russia. 
Uh, I think other companies are taking a much longer view on that. Um, I think that most everyone is saying, well, if we do go back in, it's only going to be into a different Russia. So the legacy issue is how different um, and when does that difference begin to emerge? Um, until then, though, um, I think Russia is going to be one of these very uncomfortable issues for companies who feel the pull of a potential market and the push of the reputational and regulatory risk, not to mention the sanctions that you you talked about, Claudine, um, as the primary obstacle to reentry, no matter what. Um, but I think that, that that Russia's disposition in in the community of nations and in the community of companies is the legacy issue that we're going to be dealing with from that perspective. What should we be watching as uh, we keep an eye on this one? Clearly, got many many months yet to run yet. So I'm going to take us a bit further to the east and look at those countries where Russia has historically traditionally been seen as the main security guarantor, provider of stability, economic partner. And I'm thinking particularly here of the countries in Central Asia and the South Caucasus as well, where if you think for the last 30 years or so since the, the, the end of the Soviet Union, Russia has really been the preeminent partner and seen as a sort of security guarantor of the, of the entire region. I think that perception has now changed. And that means that some of those long-running tensions that you see in some of those countries, so take Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, for example, where you, you periodically have localized clashes over access to resources, for example. And those have always been sort of, a lid has always been put on those, partly, I think, because you have this, this sort of Russia in the background as this um, perceived uh, source of stability, for want of a better word. Since the conflict in Ukraine and, and Russia's military performance there, I think that perception has now changed. And so what does that mean in terms of how those tensions play out in the future? I think that's really something that we, we, we'll, we'll be keeping an eye on um, for, for years to come, probably. I'd keep an eye on energy. And, you know, we've already had our eye on energy and we, as we've been talking throughout the course of the podcast on, um, you know, short-term changes, um, who's buying Russian oil and for how much and who's not buying Russian oil or gas anymore. Um, but I think beyond those tactical changes, we have to look for, we have to watch out for strategic changes in energy markets that might go along the following lines. Russia has lost its number one energy market. Europe. It doesn't have yet the time to export to what are likely to be its next big markets, which are, as you've mentioned, Claudine, in another context, India and China. Um, in the meantime, sanctions are designed to cause a reasonably high level of discomfort for the Russian energy sector, but not completely dismantle it because that would have um, a destabilizing effect on prices and on supply. So there's this, there's this interim period coming up where one market's gone, another has yet to be fully exploited. And in the meantime, that transition doesn't have the technological base that it needs. What happens next? Um, I think that's where we, where we need to be looking. Ooh, I'm going to throw in another one, another what to watch. I think we need to keep an eye on the places that 
could destabilize or flare up while the world's attention is elsewhere. So I know our colleagues in Asia are anxious that everybody keeps an eye on North Korea. Hasn't gone anywhere. <clears throat> Anticipating the possibility of a nuclear test this year. There were a record number of missile tests last year. There are some speculation about succession issues. So I think that's an example of a place to keep your eye on. We may have the occasion to do a second anniversary podcast. And while nobody wants to be here to discuss a war that has lasted for two years, that may be what happens in another 12 months. In those 12 months, Anna, as you mentioned in your comments earlier, we've got a whole lot of elections coming up. And I think that if we're meeting in February 2024, U.S. presidential primary season will be in full swing. And if U.S. support for Ukraine hasn't changed by then, talk of changing the level of support from the U.S. towards Ukraine will easily become an election topic of discussion. I think we'll still be talking about Ukraine, among other things, but I think we'll still be talking about Ukraine because it will still be having an impact on businesses. That may be in a in an indirect sense because it's driving the way the geopolitical environment is evolving and businesses are wanting to understand what that means for them. But there will, of course, also be many ways that the situation in Ukraine is having a very direct effect on companies that are operating in and around the country as well. Anna, you would be more familiar with how those are playing out and how you would anticipate companies still dealing with implications even a year from now. That's right, yes. I mean, companies that, that still have operations there or personnel there very much will be spending the next year, 18 months, trying to understand whether it is safe to resume operations for a start, um, whether their personnel can move around, whether they can, can actually continue business in a meaningful way, and then looking ahead to the future as to how that business is going to be positioned um, once the conflict is over. And I know that you and many of our colleagues who are working in many different functions, including cyber, business intelligence, analysis, security consulting, and not forgetting our colleagues on the ground in Ukraine, you will all be working with organizations dealing with very real near-term consequences of what's happening there, I suspect, for at least the next year. Anna, it's been a pleasure having you on The Global Insight. Please do join us again over the course of the next year and for many years to come. Thank you, Anna. Thank you very much. If you liked what you heard on this episode of The Global Insight, make sure to subscribe. And don't forget to check out our other podcasts as well, like Decrypt, featuring our experts from across the world making sense of the cyber and technology issues impacting business. As always, thanks for listening.